Welcome to Industry Leaders Journey, where we explore the lives and careers of conscious leaders who are making a positive impact on this world while they transform the supply chain and procurement business. My name is Su Shem. Do you remember what you wanted to become when you grew up? Do you actually remember why you were attracted to that idea? You might not have become exactly what you initially dreamt of being, but you may find there is a silver lining between your childhood dream and what you have become. Because in the end, it is not about what you do, but it is about why you do what you do. Today, you will hear from Martha Buffington, the CPO of DSM, and how she followed her North Star in making her career decisions. Finally, she's living her dream life with a clear purpose as a changemaker, value creator, and ambassador for all Korea women. Now, let's begin this journey. Martha, how are you today? Hey, Sue. Thanks. I'm great. All right. So you are in my favorite countries, um, Netherlands. Which part of Netherlands are you in? Well, I live in Maastricht. It's a small city in the south of the Netherlands, and it is so charming and beautiful. You have to come visit it sometime. I totally love living here. Oh, I'll take that offer. <laughs> But you have to first tell me, um, you got there, not as a tourist, as an expat, you're living there. So I'm really curious, uh, what brought you to the Netherlands? How did you get there? Well, after I had been working at the Coca-Cola company for 20 years or more, I decided it was time for the next chapter in my career. Our daughter had gone off to college. We were empty nesters. And, you know, it had always been a goal of mine to work overseas. So mm -hmm. I started a job search and was really lucky to find a recruiter who was recruiting for a position at DSM. So that's how I came to the Netherlands. Well, that's so good to hear that you actually proactively went after what you wanted. So then what is your current charter at the DSM? When I joined DSM, I joined as a VP of indirect procurement globally. But then just last year, I became the chief procurement officer. So now I lead a procurement community of about 350 people. And they source about, you know, over 5 billion euros of spend for direct and indirect goods and services. It's a fantastic role in an amazing company. And I'm one of the you know, extended leadership team of the company today. Sounds like a, it was a great pick and congratulations for that uh, good promotion. And that's awesome. So now I'm curious though, it's DSM, it's actually a Dutch company, even if it's uh, operating and selling it around the world, but you must be like few uh, female American executive there or how international is it? Actually, it's really quite international. That's been one of their focuses on you know, diversity and broader national, international people from different countries. So definitely it's a big focus and there's lots of people from different places, including lots of Americans there. So no, I, I don't feel too alone as the American in the company. But don't you feel like minority or foreigners alone? <laughs> Well, I guess, to be honest, when I first got there, I thought, well, I'm in the Netherlands, they're all speaking English, you know, it's a great yeah. global company, can't be that different from what I'm used to, I knew procurement, and I knew what I was doing. So I underestimated a little bit some of the cultural nuances, actually, you're coming into a new company, and you have to start from scratch, you don't have your 
reputation, your credibility, your contacts, your relationships, you know, all that, that you relied on for 20 years at the same company. So that was a bigger adjustment than I thought it was going to be. It's the same thing for me. You know, if I have to leave SAP after 16 years, I have to start all over. And that uh, network and relationship is really my asset. So I can imagine. Yeah, very good that you started really from the beginning again, but uh, you sound like you're really successful. But how did you create the feeling of the belonging in that new place? One of the first things I did, of course, was at least I I did what I knew worked from Coca-Cola. And that was I jumped into the women's uh, resource group that we have at DSM. Mm -hmm. I immediately found just a bond with the other women really trying to support women in their careers, develop women, Mm -hmm. help them advance in the company. I mean, that's such a passion point for me. I knew I had to be involved in that at DSM. And now I'm the executive sponsor of the group and it's having a bigger and bigger impact every year in the company. So that was something I did to help create that sense of belonging when I joined DSM. Wow, so smart. So you've you've basically found your home, like your own tribe, and then surrounded by this supportive woman and supporting each other. Really nice. Also curious, overall, what do you learn? Is there must be some sort of a cultural difference when you cross that Atlantic Ocean? Yes, actually there was. And it took me a bit of a while to learn it, right? Because it is a nuance, but the decision-making process is really different in the Netherlands. It's much more consensus-based. They have this thing called the Polder model. Wow. So back in history, when they had to drain the water from the fields, all the farmers had to work yeah. together and collaborate. And so consensus is really important in the culture. You know, in the United States, yes, we deliberate and study topics, but then once the decision is made, everybody goes. Uh-huh. Whereas in the Netherlands, there's a lot more people who can weigh in on the decision. And then the decision's not ever really made and declared all that clearly. Mm -hmm. People are just expected to follow it and go in the right direction, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is really empowering, actually. But it actually can make it harder to get things done sometimes when you don't get a concrete decision that then isn't debated anymore. So let's talk about the Coca-Cola company experience. I'm very curious how your earlier career was like. And actually, one of my first podcast guests was the uh, the head of a Coca-Cola procurement at the European partner side. It would be interesting to hear your experience from more North America side. So how did you choose, first of all, to begin your career at Coca-Cola? Well, I got my MBA in Atlanta at Emory. And as I was graduating, I set my sights on only one company, probably a risky strategy. But to me, it was just the ultimate international company. And all my life, I had wanted to you know, work and do international things. So mm-hmm. growing up, I had family that lived abroad. I was an exchange student. We traveled a good bit. And that was just my North Star. I wanted to work at the most international company, the most international job possible. So that's why I set my sights on Coca-Cola. Sounds like you really had a North Star from the beginning all the way till now. What do you want that international global aspect of it? Also, I'm curious about any other specific procurement supply chain initiative you have done in the beginning of that 20 years of a Coca-Cola life. If I think back over the 20 years, I mean, there's so many great opportunities I had, but there's two that really stand out. And they were actually pivotal moments in my career as well. 
The first one was being on the team, a very small team of people who got to integrate a $12 billion acquisition that we made in North America. Mm -hmm. And that I had a big work stream in the supply chain space for that acquisition and integration. 12 so that billion? was a great, That's yeah, 12 billion. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a huge opportunity and that helped to leapfrog my career in the supply mm -hmm. chain space. And then the second big thing I got to do was when I became chief procurement officer of a, one of our largest divisions, the whole emerging markets division, I got to sit on the board of our cross enterprise procurement group, which was the procurement consortium for the whole global Coca-Cola system. And being on that board, I really got to set our procurement strategy and you know, drive the future of how we're going to uh, do procurement for the whole global system, mostly for their direct materials. Wow. So you know, even today, that group is recognized as one of the best procurement consortiums in the world. That is a huge uh, consortium, mm -hmm. I can imagine. And then the purchasing power you guys created together as a consortium. Great experience. It's almost like a United Nation of Coca-Cola and all the things come together, right? <laughs> that is so true. To get all the bottling companies to agree on things, that, that definitely takes some diplomatic skills. <laughs> I have to ask uh, whether you drank Coca-Cola or still drink, because every Coca-Cola executive I've met, they have to have this bottle in front of them whenever we have a meeting. <laughs> That is so true. In fact, we never started a meeting until you would take a moment to make sure everybody had their beverage of choice in hand at a meeting. We had free beverages throughout the, the office. Now you probably switched to a bit healthier product, which is a DSM has a lot of good supplements they produce, right? <laughs> yes, I definitely believe in DSM's great nutritional supplements and probiotics and take those now for sure. You have to give me some names, so I need to know what I need to take. <laughs> yeah, most of DSM's products are actually the ingredients that go into the end consumer product. So uh, but most of the big name brands of nutritional supplements include our vitamins. So that's a good segue to DSM. So DSM actually is a Royal DSM that stands for Dutch State Mining or Mines, right? But it has nothing to do with the mining right now. So it probably comes from the maybe history. So educate me about DSM. Sure. It did start as a mining company 100 years ago and then transitioned to more of a chemicals company. And now we've transitioned even a third time to really be focused on the health, nutrition and sustainable living spaces. Mm -hmm. And so everything we do has to make the world better for people or the planet. And that's how we define our product portfolios. It's about a 10 billion euro company mm -hmm. and it's global. We've got operations all over the globe, around 23,000 employees. And like I said, the products we make are generally used in other end use products. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the consumer may not know the DSM brand, but uh, our nutritional supplements go into vitamins, go into food and beverage, even go into animal feed. Some of our materials go into solar panels or you know, automotive or electronic uses. Even our strong Dyneema fibers go into marine cables. Wow. So lots of broad uses for our products. Curious about your science-based innovation you talked about. Can you give me some examples of it? Yeah, we have some really interesting products now. So it's like, it's a science-based company. R&D, innovation are really the engine of the company. And Lately, we've come out with some great new products. 
one that's called Beauvert. Mm -hmm. It sounds funny, but it's a feed additive for cows and it actually reduces the methane that their digestive process creates. It's like a lactose intolerant pill for the cow? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Like that. Cattle are one of the largest uh, producers of methane in the world. It's an important greenhouse gas to to control. Okay, let's make sure every cow gets this, all right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's so interesting. And then some of the other things we have, bio-based feedstock that goes into some of the materials we make. So plastics and fibers are often petrochemical-based, but... And now we can make them with bio-based components. And so, like I mentioned, the marine cables, they're not steel anymore. They're made out of this fiber that's actually stronger than steel, but much more sustainable. That's really genius. So what did you say? You guys' emissions are making the brighter world, a brighter life? Yes. So Brighter Lives for All is our purpose. And actually, we have the acronym DSM. It stands for Doing Something Meaningful. Doing something meaningful. I love it. (laughs) Let's talk about now a little bit on this uh, CPO role. What's the strategic value as a CPO you bring to your corporate objective? CPO brings really many things. It's much more than just running the organization that does the contracting, negotiating, and buying from suppliers. Really, we oversee the cost base of the company. I mean, in DSM, it's 50-60% of the cost base of the company comes through the suppliers. So we actually go to the heart of the competitiveness of the company. Mm -hmm. So we impact the competitiveness, we impact the sustainability of our products because again, the supply base contributes 90% of the greenhouse gas emissions to the footprint of our end products, our actual operations only contribute 10% of the footprint of our products. So the actual sustainability of our products is completely determined by our supply base and how well we manage and reduce the emissions of our supply base. So we impact competitiveness, sustainability, and growth because no company can grow alone anymore. You know, you need partners and you need innovation and you need an ecosystem in your company to create those innovations and help grow and expand into new markets. Are there any specific areas you are involved as a CPO or procurement organization with other teams? Sure. Innovation, you know, procurement's very involved. And what's interesting actually is we have to make a chain out of it. So I have to influence and work with the business leaders Mm. as they come up with the strategies for their products. So if they want to make sustainability a selling point of their product, we have to look at what's the supply base that goes into that product. Then we have to work with innovation and Mm R&D to perhaps change the formula or change something about the production process so it can become more sustainable and help us source what we need to support that product. So it's really an end-to-end process. The CPO has to get involved in with many functions in the company. Right, so you're not only partnering with the suppliers, but you have to become really good business partner within the organization, like with R&D and everybody else. Absolutely, that's really insightful. Partnership is the key here. Yeah, so what's your favorite topic or your passionate topic within procurement? I am just such a huge proponent of all the value procurement can give, like that chain I just described, that partnership. 
I really think that that's where the real leverage and value is that the function brings. Mm-hmm. We're not just about sourcing. We're not just about savings. It's really about having bigger picture strategic impact on the business. So that's what I'm passionate about, getting that message out and changing people's minds who call our function purchasing. Because <laughs> we do a lot more than purchasing. And the other thing I'm really passionate about is digitalization because the way of working in the future can totally be unlocked with better digitalization. Mm-hmm. So having a strong digital strategy, having a roadmap for how I wanted to digitalize the function is really, really important to me. We share the passion. That's, that's nice. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about our passion area, digitalization. So when you joined the DSM, the company just had a selected SAPRD as a digital platform. So what did you have to do first to get that started? Yeah, when I got there, they were studying it for over a year and had done a full assessment and picked Ariba. But uh, we didn't yet have a business case or a project that was actually approved and funded. So that was the first thing I did was to get it approved and funded. Mm, that's great. So what's your advice in making that business case successful? Well, we built the business case on four things, making sure that the new system was much more user-friendly, people would use it and like it. Also that it would generate procurement savings, of course, through getting more catalogs, getting more compliance to preferred suppliers, then better financial controls, making sure we had control over who's spending what, and then more touchless transactions to help with the efficiency of our shared services. Those were the four benefits we were going after, Mm -hmm. but I actually decided to build the business case really more focused just on the procurement savings. Mm -hmm. That was the area I was most comfortable in ensuring that I could control and we could really deliver that savings. So I would say that's my advice. At least that's how I did it. Yeah, because it's more tangible and measurable. It's visible. (laughs) Exactly. And what scale of transformation are we talking about here? It's a full end-to-end Ariba implementation, both the upstream, the strategic sourcing modules, and the downstream procure-to-pay modules with the guided buying capabilities. So it's a full end-to-end transformation of how we work in indirect procurement globally. And uh, you have three phases. And how many countries are you covering? The first phase was last year during COVID crisis. We did Brazil and we did one of our sites in France. Wow. And as the pandemic hit, we completely transformed the project to be done virtually. Did you save more money by doing that? I wonder. Well, we certainly saved on travel expenses, Mm -hmm. but of course there are other complications. We had to create more virtual training than we had originally planned. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there was some costs up and down. This next phase this year in 2021 is doing 60 sites globally. Mm-hmm. So in three, three or four major phases throughout the year. And then the third phase will be in 2022, where we go back to pick up some new acquisitions and other smaller sites that we didn't do in the first round. So what's the effects or feedback so far from the regions that have gone live? The team in Brazil really was super positive. They did not have SRM yet. And so they were just using core SAP and they had a SharePoint sites for doing lots of things and lots of Excel sheets. So they absolutely loved it and they embraced it. And while Brazil is a complicated country to go live in because of all their tax mm-hmm. rules, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't perfectly smooth, of course, but they're very happy with it and happy to be part of the pilot. 
And then in France, they had SRM for much longer and we had even customized it to meet their way of working. So for them, it was actually a bit more of a change. Yeah, it's change is hard. Just have to get used to a little bit and then open-minded to embrace it. That's right. And now you're almost halfway through the transformation journey. So what are some lessons so far? Actually, before we started, I went out and talked to a lot of Ariba customers to figure out what we should look for and focus on in the project. And they all told me three things, change management, supplier enablement, and master data. And Mm -hmm. they were completely right. Those are absolutely three things to pay a lot of close attention to. Mm -hmm. But from my experience, you know, you go into these things knowing they're going to be big and complicated and hard and expensive. You just don't know in what ways they'll be big, hard, and complicated and expensive. So be prepared for the unexpected uh-huh. is one bit of advice. And the other thing is your team is the absolute most critical part of this, right? Because people make this successful. It's mm-hmm. not just the technology. And so a three-year program that's pretty intense. I mean, projects are always short on resources and short on budget and short on time. Mm -hmm. That puts a huge amount of stress on the team. Mm -hmm. So making sure that you have the best people on the team, you've got a great pipeline of people on the team because you need some bench strength. Mm -hmm. People will get new jobs. They'll move on. They'll roll off the project. So having bench strength is important and just looking out for their health and happiness and engagement in the project I think is a really, really good advice for anyone embarking on something like yeah. this. I mean, we call it transformation for a reason. If it's an easy product, small thing, then it's not really transformation, right? I guess. And that's I guess for sure. Off, the harder it is after benefit and reward is bigger. It's like, yeah, that was worth it. <laughs> okay. So I want to shift to purpose of life. I remember you talked about your childhood dream initially, and we There was something along the being an ambassador. And remind me, what was your childhood dream? Yeah, I wanted to be in government or be an ambassador. Uh, During high school and college, I was active in Model United Nations. And I really believed in the power of those kind of associations that could cut across different countries and really work on the biggest problems of the world and help countries get along better and make the world more prosperous. So yeah, I wanted to change the world, I guess, like most people when they're young. Yeah. So that's why you studied international politics in college? Yes, I did international politics. (laughs) Yeah. International politics to international uh, business. (laughs) So then what do you think you're that 10 years old young girl yourself say if she met you today? Knowing you switched from politics to the business, would she be happy or disappointed? I think she would say that I'm persistent. You know, I had a North Star and I found a way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. When I graduated college, I just really didn't have enough foreign language skills to get into the foreign service. And actually, if you ask my husband, he would joke that I didn't have the diplomatic skills either. <laughs> so... I found another way to pursue my interests through business. And these days, business plays a huge role in making change. So it worked out perfectly. Yeah. So then how do you see the purpose of life at this stage of your life? Yeah, I have my work purpose and my personal purpose. Mm -hmm. I mean, in work, since I am leading a big transformation of procurement, I really want to be able to look back and see that I've really made a difference in Mm -hmm. procurement at DSM, really made it better. 
people really say that it's a great place to work in that group and that it, it's such an integral part in the business, right? Those partnerships that we make, uh, the things that we do that really enable our business strategy, that's really valuable to the company mm-hmm. and no longer we're just the purchasing arm. So that's my purpose in DSM, but my purpose more broadly has always been about advancing women in their careers. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to get my stride in my career. I didn't have that much confidence early on. You know, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way about how do you manage a career? How do you advance a career? How do you be a woman in business? How do you be a woman leader? Mm -hmm. So I really want to help other women learn that and help them be successful. So that's my purpose now. I really hope that someday we're not going to talk about women leaders and, oh, it's a risk to give that job to a woman. Women are leaders like everyone else. And then actually women's innate skills and Mm -hmm. and, um, way of being a leader is really valued and not measured against people's vision of what a male leader is. Yeah, it's so good to hear that uh, you reflected on your career and realized then I'm saying that it wasn't easy, right? It wasn't like I just, no, the path was laid out. No, you actually had to probably fight for it and oh, probably self-doubt a few times at some point because uh, I had those moments and I always thought that maybe I don't belong here. You know, you just you're kind of minority with all many, many male executives. So that's good that you recognize it and wanted to help other female colleagues. So then what are you most grateful for? All these things, it looks like uh, you did follow your North Star and then uh, you got to that place uh, you wanted to be. I mean, of course, I'm grateful for all the experiences I had growing up. You know, my family gave me lots of opportunities. My husband and daughter are amazing. My daughter's just graduating from college now. So I really hope that I can be a role model for her and, you know, and a coach for her as she goes out into the working world as a woman in engineering, so the scientific field. Just I think back about my career though, I'm incredibly grateful for all those people who helped me along the way. And I think that's something that other people can learn that as long as you're open to that feedback and open to that encouragement and new opportunities to learn, Mm -hmm. then you will have a fulfilling career, but it takes you putting yourself out there and being open to it as well. So I'm really grateful that I was able to get that support throughout my career. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. Sometimes I sit and think about it and every single manager I had, actually whatever they did, the one decision they did for my career, like advancement. Without that, I don't know how. So somebody trusts me, somebody helped me, somebody supported me all the time. Exactly. We don't get here ourselves. Yeah. So finish this sentence. I am optimistic. I'm optimistic about the activism of the younger generation. Just like I was super idealistic when I was young, wanting to change the world through government. I really think that there's some huge problems and challenges we're facing in the world right now. And I just don't see them being solved in any one generation. So we really need the younger generation to lean in and, and, and care about climate change and economic and social injustice and countries pulling back from globalization. I'm just as such a true believer that uh, globalization is really important. So that's what I'm optimistic about. I just hope that the younger generation leans in and owns these things and tries to work to make them better because uh, they can't be solved quickly or easily, but someone's got to be passionate about tackling them in the future. 
That's really good. It gives me a big smile. Today was wonderful sharing your story and can see that little Martha thinking about <laughs> joining United Nations one day and then now you're actually doing it in a very different way but really helping people around and especially all the female colleagues and advancing their career to make the world better. I hope you love this talk as much as I did. Martha Buffington is inspiring, real, and honest, providing us practical lessons learned that I had to make lots of notes today. Tonight, I'm going to lie on my bed and imagine seeing the bright North Star in the sky, and I will reflect and imagine embarking on my own journey. Where have I come from and where am I going? Thanks for joining us on this episode of Industry Leaders Journey. This series is produced by the Industry Value Chain team at SAP, where we are committed to making the world run better and improving people's lives. For more information and to access all of our podcasts, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Ariba.com. <laughs>